Our Old Testament reading today is going to be from Ezekiel 46, verse 16 through 18. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. The word of the Lord. Our psalm today is Psalm 66, 1 through 12. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river and flood. There do we rejoice in him. Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless God, Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, Lord God, have tested us. You have tried us, the silver was tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Through fire and through water, that you have brought us out to the place of abundance. Our New Testament reading today will be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope and first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, 
or, or brothers or sisters, or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Good morning. It's really good to be back here with you to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. Um, and we at Church of the Lamb continue to pray for you, uh, that God will bless you, that he will give you growth here in Stanton. And I've lived in Harrisonburg for about 13 years now, and I think Stanton is the most picturesque town in the Shenandoah Valley. You live in a beautiful place. And we at Church of the Lamb are very excited about the upcoming Pentecost service, just three weeks from today on May 23rd. God willing, we'll celebrate this with you, with Church of the Incarnation, and with Cush Anglican Church on the new property that God has given us in Kieseltown. Um, it really is a lovely spot. There's a beautiful stream that flows right through it. I think you'll find it lovely as well. Today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. And notice that it's the fifth Sunday of Easter, not the fifth Sunday after Easter. Easter is not a one-day celebration. It's a 50-day celebration. And there's a nice note in the worship guide, food for thought, regarding that celebration Easter is a week of weeks, seven weeks, that begins with Easter Sunday and culminates in Pentecost. So, if you put away your Easter decorations, it's okay, but go ahead and bring those back out, because we're not done celebrating yet. You could even bring back the bunnies. God loves bunnies because there's lots of them on the earth. <laughs> we're not done celebrating yet. So you've just started a new series in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And what a wonderful way to celebrate Christ's victory over sin and death. Have you ever had the opportunity to fly over your home or your neighborhood or your hometown in an airplane? Has anybody had that opportunity? It's exhilarating, isn't it? Uh, to see your home from sort of a bird's eye view. It gives you a whole new perspective on where you live. Um, I remember uh, when, we, when my wife and I lived in Pullman, Washington. I'm originally from the West Coast. And Pullman is in the very southeast corner of Washington State. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, it's out in sort of a farming region. And one time, just one time, I flew out of the regional airport. It was, it was a small airport, even smaller than the Shenandoah Valley Airport up at Ware's Cave. Uh, the only plane you flew out of from that airport had uh, twin propellers. That was it. No jets. Um, and I remember flying out of, the, out of uh, that airport, and I knew that we lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, we'd lived there, we had friends, we went to church, we had a community. But I just realized how small it was when we flew over, because I could see the town, I could see the apartment complex we lived in, I could see where my wife worked, and at the time, she was about four months pregnant with our first child, so I was feeling kind of emotional about that, but in a flash, it was gone, and sort of swallowed up by the landscape. 
It just seemed so small um, compared to how big it seemed in real life. And that's, that's what happens when you get sort of that bird's eye view, that perspective. Um, and that's the kind of perspective that Ephesians provides for us. Um, it gives us a perspective on the Christian faith that is much like viewing your home community from an airplane. It, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a bird's eye view of the major themes of the Christian faith, where, where we see these familiar themes, themes that we hear every Sunday from new angles, unfamiliar angles. We get a big picture, a sense of the whole, and we also see how important truths are connected and interrelated with one another, uh, like a beautiful tapestry or mosaic. And this big picture perspective is clearly apparent in the opening prayer that we find in Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It's toward the end. Uh, sometimes it's hard to keep track of all those small epistles. When I was a kid, they gave us a mnemonic device Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know if that will help you, um, but that's one way to remember where the books are back there, the letters. So we have this massive, colossal, really, prayer of praise in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. In fact, in the Greek, it's one sentence. Okay, In the English Standard Version, they break it up into five sentences and two paragraphs. They're being nice to us, because in the Greek, it's one sentence, 202 words. It's a run-on sentence. It may be inspired scripture, but it's not necessarily the best Greek grammar. But it's an amazing prayer. If you try to read it out loud, you'll run out of breath. Um, and this kind of reflects the, the breathlessness, the intensity with which Paul is describing our position and privileges in Christ. And if we listen to the words of this prayer carefully, if we take them into our hearts, they'll take our breath away too. Paul piles on rich description after rich description, and the language gets sort of heavily loaded. The grammatical structure is almost to the breaking point. It strains under the weight of all this language. And there's something really poetic about this passage, isn't there? One thing, if you study poetry or read it or like it, you know that poetry often pushes language to the breaking point. It uses language in unconventional ways. It tweaks language. And Paul, in describing our great salvation in Christ, pushes language to its very limits. And even in English translation, we can feel the strain on the language of what he's trying to describe. It also gives this passage very much a liturgical flavor. Rowan Williams has said that worship declares what has happened because of Jesus Christ in us. Worship manifests the benefits of Christ to us. And Paul certainly does that here in this passage. There's a lot to unpack here in verses 3 through 14. Um, one thing that people have noticed is that there's a Trinitarian emphasis in this passage. In verses 3 through the beginning of verse 6, we see the work of the Father in election. In the second half of verse 6 through verse 12, we see the work of the Son in redemption. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see the work of the Spirit in inheritance. 
We're only three weeks away from Pentecost, which is the culmination of Easter. And it's precisely on this last theme that I want to focus our thoughts this morning, this metaphor of inheritance. And we saw this in our readings from Ezekiel and the Gospel of Matthew. So, notice in verses 11 through 14 that the metaphor of inheritance bookmarks this small passage. In verse 11, first part of verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then at the end of verse 13 and verse 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But what is this inheritance? I would like us to think of really of four questions regarding this inheritance. What? Why, how, and when? The first question we'll think about is what is this inheritance? I don't think this metaphor needs too much unpacking. I think we all have a sense of what inheritance means. But in the ancient world, inheritance was, I would say, much more important to the culture than it is for us today. If we inherit something in America today from a relative, from our parents, it's a nice bonus, right? My uncle died, and I got this money or this property. It's a nice bonus. But for the most part, we don't depend upon that inheritance. There are exceptions, but for the most part, we don't. But in the ancient world, inheritance was everything. It was the way the family name and property were transmitted from one generation to the next. So what is the inheritance that Paul has in mind here? Well, basically, he spends the rest of the letter spelling it out in detail. But from this opening passage, we can see that this inheritance centers on salvation in Christ and all that this entails. Remember what it says in verse 3, that we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you have wanted to be rich in your lives before? I'll raise my hand. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a place where money wasn't necessarily an obstacle? Well, what we can see here in Ephesians is that Paul is also interested in riches. The term is used five times in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 7, into verse 8, Paul talks about the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In 118, Paul says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then chapter 3, verse 16, the riches of his glory. In Christ, we are centillionaires. If you're not familiar with that term, that number, centillion, it's a one followed by 303 zeros. Okay? In Christ, we aren't filthy rich, we are righteously rich. So this is the inheritance, and Paul will unpack this in great detail throughout this letter. You'll be looking at it carefully in the weeks to come. But how do we receive this inheritance? There are two things we can talk about here. First, and this is a very important emphasis in the opening chapter, 
we receive this inheritance through the sovereign purpose of God. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1 very heavily emphasizes this, if you will, sovereign dimension of salvation. God is sovereign. And the language of sovereignty is everywhere in this passage. Verse 4 of chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. The end of verse 5 talks about the purpose of his will. And in the verse, uh, verse 11, the verse I just read, the key words, predestined, purpose, counsel, will. And we see in verse 4 that divine selection is pre-temporal. It took place in eternity past, before creation, before time. And some have thought of, of this term of election and the idea of predestination as reflecting kind of a cold, calculated act of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Notice the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5. In love, in love, he predestined us. This underscores the Father's deep affection for those he chooses. So God has predestined us for this inheritance and uh, all the benefits that come with this, uh, with it. This is not a God who thinks on his feet, who shoots from the hip, who flies by the seat of his pants. Our salvation was planned outside of time in the eternal councils of the Holy Trinity before the foundation of the world. How else do we receive this inheritance? We've seen this idea of the sovereign purpose of God. Another very important way can be summed up in two words which we see throughout Paul's writings. It's a very rich phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. And then verse 13, the beginning, in him also. This phrase in Christ and its equivalents are used at least 40 times in the letter to Ephesians, 40 times. Um, and we see at least 11 instances of it in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in him. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, in the beloved. Verse 7, in him. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, in him. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, in Christ, and then in him is repeated twice in verse 13. You get the idea. Christ is central. He is everything. He is all and in all. Um, the work of Jesus Christ, especially his death and resurrection, saves us. And when it comes to inheritance in Ephesians, as we will learn what is true of Christ is also true of those who believe in him in many ways. So we've thought about the what and the how of inheritance. Let's, I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, the what and the how. Let's think a bit about the why. Why do we receive this inheritance? Well, to consider this question, we might ask, ask a, an even more basic question. 
who receives inheritance? We see a clue in the word inheritance itself. The third, the fourth, and the fifth letters. Heir or heir. Heirs. Heirs receive inheritance, right? And who were heirs in the ancient world? As Jay pointed out last week, heirs in the ancient world were sons of fathers. Daughters did, were important in the family, but in the ancient world it was the sons who carried on the family name. And we see in verse 5 a very special metaphor. This is one of Paul's favorites. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Adoption. Now we need to understand this concept of adoption in Paul's context because there are many similarities to adoption today, but there are also striking differences. Adoption was an accepted and high-profile method of perpetuating lineage in the ancient world. It was a common practice among the elite of the Roman Empire, including Roman emperors. So Julius Caesar adopted a relative as his son, and this relative's name was Octavian, and Octavian became Caesar Augustus. There were other Roman emperors who adopted uh, men as their sons. The Roman family, the familia in the Roman Empire, consisted was a bit bigger than what we think of in, in terms of family today. Um, it included, of course, husband and wife and dependents. But these dependents weren't only children, they were also slaves and their offspring. So it, the family was a bit bigger than our 21st century understanding of a family. And when a family was threatened by extinction because there wasn't a male heir, adoption became a lifeline. It became a way to um, continue the family line. And so some people would adopt a son. There's another interesting difference between adoption then and adoption today. Today, typically, children, uh, children tend to be the subjects of adoption. But in Roman society, in the ancient world, most people who were adopted were adults. There were two reasons for this. First, there was a very high infant mortality rate in the ancient world. And so adopting a young child would be a big risk. Secondly, if a father were to adopt a son to carry on the family name, which included the family reputation, the father wanted to know what kind of person this would be. So they typically adopted adults. That was what happened in the Roman Empire. And what happened to this adopted child? Well, this person would be taking, taken out of their previous community and placed into a new relationship of son to the new father. Old debts would be canceled. And this adopted son would start a new life as, as part of this new family. His old family connections would be more or less left behind, and he would be fully part of this new family. And certainly we can see how wonderful a metaphor this is to what happens in salvation. Paul has landed on a perfect metaphor. In Christ, we are taken out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. In Christ, God becomes our Father. Remember the resurrection declaration that Jesus gives to Mary Magdalene 
He tells her to go tell his disciples that I am go- that I have risen and I'm going to my Father, my God, and your Father and your God. In Christ, our debts are canceled. Sin is no longer powerful over us. It no longer has dominion over us. And in Christ, we enjoy life as part of a new family, the church. And some have observed that probably there's no book in the entire New Testament that says more about the church than Ephesians. The church is everywhere in this letter. This idea of a new family in Christ. There are many metaphors that Paul uses to describe salvation. One of the ones that you hear often is justification, which is a law court metaphor. We see this in the early chapters of Romans. Redemption, which is connected to slavery, the slave market, but of course goes back to the Exodus, right? Where Israel is redeemed from Egypt, from slavery, and becomes God's people. But adoption is an especially favorite metaphor of Paul. It's something that he cherishes And as I said, it perfectly illustrates the new status that we have as believers in Jesus Christ and all the benefits that come with that new status. So we've considered the what, the how, and the why of our inheritance in Christ. One more question, when? When do we receive this inheritance? Well, the short answer is now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. We see our inheritance now with the sealing of the Spirit. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Um, We know from other places in Paul's writings and elsewhere in the New Testament that when someone believes, the Spirit comes to indwell that person. We see believers in in the book of Acts receiving the Holy Spirit. And not just Jewish believers, but also Gentile believers receive the Spirit. And in this passage here in Ephesians, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit's sealing, the seal of the Holy Spirit. What does this idea of seal connote? What does it represent? Well, first of all, it represents authenticity. If a letter in the ancient world was sealed, it represented the authority of the person who wrote it. It showed it to be authentic from that person. If anyone tried to break that seal, they were defying the authority of that person. And it wasn't only letters that were sealed. You might recall that the tomb of Jesus was also sealed, right? And the idea was there that if anybody tried to break the seal and tried to open the tomb, they were defying the Roman Empire and they would pay the consequences. That didn't stop Jesus from doing it, but that was the idea. And then the idea of seal also connotes identity and ownership. Signet rings were used for seals, right? These rings that would be pressed onto wax or a similar material that would be used to seal a document. And everybody had, every family or uh, representative would have their own unique signet ring, okay? This would usually, uh, the ring would usually have an engraving of a coat of arms or a crest or something that was unique to that person or that leader or that family. It's also interesting that in Romans 4, Paul talks about circumcision being the seal of righteousness for Abraham. 
the sort of symbol of a marker of identity for him. So we see the sealing of, of the Spirit, and we've received this already in Christ, but there's much more to come. And this gets us from the now to the not yet, this idea of a down payment, a guarantee at the end of verse 13, beginning of verse 14. The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Paul's mixing metaphors a bit here. Uh, he likes to do that. But it's okay. They're conceptually related. And it's part of what makes his epistles so rich and delightful to read. The Greek term here for guarantee is arabon. It means a down payment, a deposit, a partial payment for security. We understand this idea because when we buy a house in our culture, we make a down payment. We don't pay, most people don't pay for a house in full. They do a down payment and then they pay over time. That's the same idea here. We've been given the Holy Spirit, but it's only a down payment of all the great things that are going to come. The Spirit is a down payment of the good things that God has in store for all believers. So let me just make a few points of application as we close this morning. Inheritance and adoption are rich metaphors of the salvation that comes only through Christ. And there's a lot of application coming later in Ephesians. So I won't go into too much detail here. Paul builds the foundation in chapters 1 through 3. And then by chapter 4, he's very much concerned about Christian living. How do we live this out? But let me point out two things specifically. And essentially, I'm repeating what uh, Jay shared last week. First, with adoption and inheritance, there comes ethical obligations. Last Sunday, Jay talked about personal sanctification, holiness. Okay? And for Paul, adoption is not an end unto itself. Immediately before talking about adoption in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says that God chose us to be what? Holy and blameless before him. In the ancient world, it was expected that adopted sons would honor and obey their fathers. They were to behave in a manner that was worthy of the family. They were not to do anything that would discredit their father or harm the reputation of the family. And we are to do the same. And the second application is adoption and inheritance are family metaphors that illustrate Christian community. Jay also talked about this last week, the importance of deep commitment to unity, the importance of community. And as adopted daughters and sons, we are part of a family. So hyper-individualism, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I have no place in this community. These things have made our society sick, and we need to learn to live in community with one another. And of course, part of being part of God's family is that we also join God's great story of salvation. Let me read something to you from N.T. Wright regarding this passage. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is a celebration of the larger story within which every single Christian story, every story of individual conversion, faith, spiritual life, obedience, and hope is set. Only by understanding and celebrating the larger story 
can we hope to understand everything that's going on in our smaller stories? This story that we find in Scripture provides a meta-narrative, a grand narrative that guides our Christian lives and our witness in the places that we live. And how you live that out here in Stanton at Restoration will be a little bit different than how we live it out in Kieseltown at Church of the Lamb. But together, as daughters and sons who've been adopted, who've been brought into the family, we must live into this big picture story that we find in Ephesians and throughout Scripture. We must walk in a manner that's worthy of our inheritance in Christ. And this is a glorious inheritance. It's been foreordained by the Father. It's been accomplished through the Son. And it's been guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Great God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, I pray with your servant Paul that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you more. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can behold the riches of your glorious inheritance among the saints. Amen.